0: I wanted to take a moment to tell you guys about my favorite baby food brand. So I actually don't buy a lot of baby food and I don't use it a lot, but I do like to have some baby food, some pouches on hand just for those moments where I feel like I need something convenient or I need to just throw something in my diaper bag and go. So my favorite baby food brand and really the only one we use now is Serenity Kids. The reason that I love Serenity Kids so much is because they focus on nutrient-dense foods such as pasture-raised and grass-fed meat and organic vegetables. So I know that the quality is amazing and I feel safe and confident feeding it to my baby. You can go to myserenitykids.com and use the code TaylorKulik15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. Hi everyone, welcome. I'm so excited today I have Lily Nichols joining me. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, a certified diabetes educator, a researcher and an author with a passion for evidence based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She is the co-founder of the Women's Health Nutrition Academy and author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. You can find her work at lilinicholsrdn.com. Lily, welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for the invite. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and how you became so passionate about prenatal nutrition and gestational diabetes?
1: Yeah, so really most of my career as a dietitian, I've been working in some way, shape or form in the prenatal space. So from clinical practice, I worked in a perinatology practice for a number of years, mostly working with gestational diabetes, but all types of pregnancy complications and uncomplicated pregnancies as well and working at the public policy level with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program. So I certainly got to see uh, sort of an inside view of how difficult it is to shift uh, dietary guidelines even from that very small vantage point, Um, as well as a lot of work in um, advising clinical research studies and training other health professionals on how to best manage pregnancy. And pregnancy complications like gestational diabetes. Um, You know, I, I really got passionate about this work from the angle of gestational diabetes when I understood the long term impact that it can have on the baby along their really their whole life into adulthood if blood sugar is not well-controlled in the mother. So it can be anything from a six to 19-fold increased risk of type 2 diabetes or obesity by the time the child turns 13. And this is because their bodies are imprinted genetically. I mean, we call it epigenetics. They're Expression of their genes is impacted by the environmental factors that they are exposed to in pregnancy. So, blood sugar is just one factor, but you can also include, you know, nutrient deficiencies or exposure to toxins or lots of stress. I mean, many things can impact this. So, knowing that this one little factor could have such a huge impact on a child's future health um, really stuck home with me um, long term. And then seeing in practice how well or maybe not well the guidelines work on helping to manage uh, blood sugar in pregnancy led me down many different paths of researching you know how our dietary guidelines were originally set what was the strength of the evidence used to set those recommendations what has research found in recent years on specific nutrients or nutrient levels um, And really, how can we best support moms to have healthier pregnancies, more enjoyable pregnancies, healthier babies, um, primarily through focusing on nutrition. So that really led me to write both of my books and just get the word out so we can sort of tackle this from a a grassroots level, which is really the level that I think we're going to make the biggest impact, not like a top-down policy level.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that, and I love your work so much. And I um, love your book, Real Food for Pregnancy. I read it before my last pregnancy, and um, it was so fascinating to me as I was reading it because it's all—it's really a very research-backed book. I mean, you cite and reference everything in there, and it was really interesting to learn that a lot of the conventional prenatal advice that we're given is really not backed by a whole lot of research. So for those that are kind of new to your work, unfamiliar with your work, haven't read your book, can you tell us a little bit about how your approach to prenatal nutrition differs from conventional prenatal nutrition advice?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the conventional advice, I mean, if anyone's familiar with the dietary guidelines, their first dietary guidelines in the US were issued in 1980. Um, and they're, they've been relatively unchanged, um, since then they make tiny little tweaks, but it's pretty much the same message that those guidelines encourage us to reduce our intake of fat, especially saturated fat, reduce our intake of salt, increase our intake of, uh, carbohydrate choose lean protein, choose whole grains, like avoid full fat dairy, take the yolks out of your eggs, I mean, it's the same message we've been given for those, anyone who's childbearing age. I mean, this is pretty much what we grew up with as kids hearing. Um, Now, those guidelines go on to influence all the other guidelines, prenatal nutrition included. And they take a very like macronutrient focused approach. Like you need X percentage of your calories coming from these macronutrients and then Like if the diet ends up being deficient in specific nutrients, you need to consume fortified foods or take a supplement, right? So that's where you get the like iron fortified breakfast cereal, because if you follow their guidelines to a T, you end up with a diet that's deficient in iron. I mean, you just, you can't do it if your diet doesn't (laughs) include um, very much uh, animal protein, which really provides us with the most bioavailable iron, right? Um, If you're cutting out the yolks from your diet because you heard cholesterol is bad and so you don't eat egg yolks, well, your diet's probably deficient in choline. So, I mean, we haven't gotten as far as fortifying the food supply with choline for better or for worse, and it's not in most prenatal supplements, but Mm -hmm. it's fine because you just have to follow those specific macronutrient ratios of your diet. Now, my approach instead is to look at what micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, for example, do we need in highest amounts in pregnancy? Which ones are we most likely to be deficient in or difficult to get from our diets? Which foods provide those? Let's build a reasonable looking diet based on building up the micronutrient density as much as possible. And then let's see where the cards fall, see where we fall with macronutrients. And it just so happens that you don't end up with a low fat diet. Um, You end up with a little more protein in the diet, which lo and behold, we actually need because the first ever study done on protein requirements in pregnant women specifically was done in 2015. And they found that our guidelines underestimate protein requirements in late pregnancy by 73%. I mean, that's a huge uh, miscalculation. Um, you also end up with a diet that just so happens to be lower in carbohydrates because a lot of the nutrients that you need in highest amounts in pregnancy just are not found or not very found in very concentrated amounts in carbohydrate rich foods so you just end up with a different macro balance but you meet the nutrient requirements of pregnancy far better than the conventional guidelines Um, and I show you that actually in the book it's in the Uh, first chapter, which you can download free on my website where I have a comparison meal plan between the two and then ran a micronutrient analysis. Um, you also see the calories and macros. So it's like pretty equivalent calorically. The macro ratios are different and you meet the micronutrient requirements far better with the real food plan. So I take like a nutrient dense approach, uh, first and foremost.
0: Yeah, that's so great. Why do you think there's such a lag between the research, what the research is actually telling us and clinical practice and what doctors and uh, most nutritionists and dietitians are recommending for um, pregnant women? Well, I mean, a
1: lot of it comes down to systemic issues with how our healthcare system is set up. So the way Mm -hmm. our healthcare system is set up, you just, as a clinician and I, I speak as somebody who has worked in, you know, conventional healthcare, you don't have time <laughs> built right. into your schedule to research. Mm-hmm. Um, you, are so, you are booked so back to back with clients that you don't have time to do anything other than actually like sit there face to face with clients or uh, document, you know, your chart notes after your visit. So what are you going to do as a professional you're probably just going to present the guidelines as they are presented to you. Um, In addition, you can face like liability if you go off of the guidelines and recommend something else and cause harm. So you have to be very careful. Um, This is why my my stuff is so heavily cited. I mean, I feel like almost every sentence has like a, a footnote because I want people to know like where the information um, is coming from this is like a Mm peer-reviewed study that i pulled this from and this is why i came to this conclusion i didn't just pull it out of thin air Mm -hmm. um so i think that that's like the primary issue the other issue is that there's just a pretty long lag time in general for new research to make it into clinical practice it's hard to change old habits if you've always taught a certain thing um it's going to take a lot more evidence to convince you to teach something else and to change that habit so they actually have done studies on this and shown that there's a lag time of about 17 years of new Mm -hmm. research being like say a new study comes out in the year 2000 it's unlikely that that information will make it into clinical practice until approximately year 2017 and then Mm -hmm. I would argue it'll take even longer for that to be incorporated into public policy um you know, the tiniest little change, and I can speak to this from personal experience, can take like years for the committee to make a decision that yes, we're going to make that change. So I think a really good example of this is choline. Um, It's a B vitamin like compound that's really important for fetal brain development, for placental health, for the prevention of preeclampsia. We had our first ever recommended intake for choline set in 1998 those data were not based on data in pregnant women, it was based on adult men um, and how much like, restricting their intake of choline would lead to liver damage and how much replenishing their choline intake would fix said liver damage. That's how they came up with the numbers mm-hmm. and then they estimate through some math essentially <laughs> to estimate how much we'd need in pregnancy or breastfeeding. Well, now we have like randomized controlled trials supplementing pregnant women with different amounts of choline and the groups that are supplemented with more than double what the current recommended intake is have better outcomes in their baby's brain developments at all time points that their babies are tested. And so there's, there's been a push for many years from choline researchers to really get this information out there and to update the guidelines. In addition, we have to really take a close look at what our guidelines are because they generally are discouraging the consumption Mm -hmm. of choline rich foods um, and or endorsing dietary patterns that are automatically choline deficient, such as a vegan diet. You cannot get enough choline on a vegan diet. It cannot be done because plant foods are just not rich enough. They're not concentrated enough in choline. Um, So if you're going to endorse that dietary pattern, you also need to have like a default built-in choline supplement included, which is not yet part Mm -hmm. of the guidelines, right? Can you see how you end up in this like big, huge mess? I'm using the example of one Mm -hmm. nutrient here, and I could give you literally dozens of other examples where we run into these sort of quandaries of like, oh, but this research found, but that research found like a lot of times it's easier To just sort of like stay status quo and not rock the boat.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I know I appreciate you. And I know there's so many people that appreciate you out there doing this work, trying to change the way we think about this and trying to share this information. Um, I'm so curious because when I was reading your book, I know you talked about a lot of like like myths, right? Myths about nutrition, what you can't eat, what you can't eat in pregnancy. So I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing, what are maybe your top, like one or two myths that you kind of just want to briefly debunk about what we should or should not be eating? Maybe that's a tough question for you.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think I'll take this maybe from the uh, foods to avoid
0: Mm -hmm. angle. There's
1: many different angles. I could take this question, but I feel like a lot you know, in practice, when women come to me, they're often like, what do I need to avoid? Like, what can't I eat now that I'm pregnant? There's all these concerns that like what you're going to eat is going to harm. Which I the think baby.
0: It, it, it kind of goes along with this, like, it's like this fear-based mentality, especially yes. during pregnancy, which I think that's what I loved about your book is it's very empowering and it doesn't feel fear-based at all. It's just logical and, and reasonable, which I love. And I think that's what pregnant women need.
1: Yes. Yes. And you know, what's, what's sort of ironic about it is that's one of the criticisms I have from um, people working in conventional healthcare is like, I'm overwhelming them with too much information. um, Or like, you know, I have a section in like the foods to avoid chapter talking about the research on caffeine or alcohol, things that are kind of controversial. And they're like, no, you shouldn't highlight the studies that show that like drinking one glass of wine is not necessarily shown to harm the baby. And by the way, I don't endorse alcohol consumption in pregnancy because I don't think it's offering you any nutritional benefits. Mm -hmm. But if we're really going to speak to like the research on this, the studies that have looked at intake of one glass a day, don't find evidence of harm. There's Mm -hmm. not evidence of benefit either. Right. But like we we lump in you know all like the tiniest sip of alcohol is going to damage your baby causing all this stress when it's like no right. probably having a sip of your husband's beer is not that big of a deal do i endorse you drink beer throughout your pregnancy no but we also need to like calm people down mm-hmm. from this like this feeling like you know you're, you have to walk on eggshells your entire pregnancy which right. is just not the case um so i didn't mean to go into the controversial land of alcohol but nonetheless when you're talking about foods to avoid, a lot of times you're given like a pamphlet or a list that says, don't don't eat this while you're pregnant. This food is unsafe for you to consume. And usually things are on that list because of their um, risk for being contaminated with certain bacteria that could cause an infection like salmonella or listeria or something like that. Um, Interestingly, it's when you actually look at the list and look at the relative risk that those foods are contaminated or the relative risk that you'll actually get sick from them while you're pregnant. It it really doesn't make sense that we've chosen those foods to be on the list and then ignored other foods to not be on the list. So a great example is eggs. They recommend you don't eat eggs with runny yolks because there's a chance that you could get salmonella, which can be more serious um, when you're pregnant because your body makes all sorts of immune system changes to allow your baby to grow and as such you know you're more susceptible to foodborne illness but the chances that an egg contains salmonella is like one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 eggs Mm -hmm. moreover of all the foodborne illness outbreaks in the U.S. only two percent are attributed to eggs Mm -hmm. but the foods to avoid lists do not include the food group that is most likely to lead to foodborne illness. So in the U S 46% of foodborne illness outbreaks are due to raw fruits and vegetables, but nowhere on the foods to avoid list. do they say like, don't have raw spinach, don't Mm -hmm. have raw fruit. Um, they don't even tell you to avoid like probably the most contaminated, which is pre-cut fruits and vegetables that you consume raw like things that you buy pre-cut at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Like if you cook them, fine, you'll probably probably kill any bacteria that's in there. But those are notoriously linked to foodborne illness. Or you think about all the E. coli issues with romaine lettuce in the past couple right. of years. I mean, it's just like yeah. wild. So we've kind of arbitrarily chosen the foods that are like a no-no versus the foods that nobody gives, you know, any you know, indication that that they could potentially be contaminated because in truth, any food can become contaminated. So in right. my opinion, it just comes down to common food safety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are you buying high quality foods? Are you storing them at the proper temperature? Are you cooking them in a clean kitchen? Are you making sure not to cross contaminate raw meat or animal foods with foods that will not be cooked, like raw vegetables that you're gonna put in a salad? Are you putting like meat back in, that's cooked back into the marinade that it sat in when it was raw? I mean, common sense things that a lot of people actually don't do surprisingly could prevent the majority of issues. Um, In addition to that, most of our foodborne illness outbreaks are from foods eaten away from the home. So restaurants and like pre-prepared meals, most of it is not coming from what we're cooking actually at the house. So if we encourage people to cook, more food at home and less food at restaurants, we might actually do more to reduce foodborne illness outbreaks than just giving a list of you cannot eat XYZ food.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so, yeah, that's so interesting. And you've talked about eggs and the benefits of choline so much. And, you know, the what is the risk too of putting that food on the not, avoid list? And then maybe pregnant women are so scared to eat that food at all that they then don't reap the benefits of the food. So that's another factor to consider.
1: Absolutely. We need to be thinking of that sort of uh, risk benefit ratio of like mm-hmm. playing it safe with food versus risking uh, nutrient deficiencies. Eggs are like one of the biggest ones. It's like a hill I will die on. <laughs> they were just so nutrient dense that if you, unless you have an egg allergy, I really think they're such a, a valuable component in the diet. I mean, they represent more than half of our. Uh, choline intake in our diets they're just one of the the most choline rich food sources that we have so if you fall into that category of i will not eat eggs unless they are overeasy or have a slightly runny yolk and then you're going to ditch eggs entirely as a result of concerns of food safety i think we have you know flipped this risk benefit right. not in your favor you know Um, so yeah we just need to you know have a more reasonable conversation about this and you know again to go back to the um, the professionals who think like you don't want to give women this information because you don't want them to make a wrong decision Mm. I mean this is like (laughs) this is a perfect example of like it's An informed choice, right? You could choose to only consume, if you wanna be really safe, you could choose to only consume your eggs like scrambled, hard boiled, where the eggs are like totally cooked until the yolk is solid. Um, But I know a lot of women who just can't eat eggs like that. Like they find them kind of repulsive and disgusting. And I know that I somewhat fall into that category. Um, It's hard for me to do scrambled eggs unless they're cooked like exactly so, but you know, Mm -hmm. an egg that's over medium, like I'm there for it. So I know I would have fallen into the category of somebody who wouldn't have consumed enough choline if I had followed that um, food safety advice Mm -hmm. to a T. And I personally felt comfortable with the one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 risk category Um, I also know there's additional research showing that when you source eggs from pasture raised or or organically raised chickens, the chances that they contain salmonella are sevenfold lower because guess what, Mm. like healthier chickens don't happen Mm. to harbor as much harmful bacteria in their guts um, and eggs come out the same hole as like all the other stuff. It's one mm. elementary canal in chickens, right? So it's like you got healthier hens with healthier guts, they're, they're less likely that their eggs are going to be contaminated as well. So it was like, okay, this is another, you know, reminder to source quality food when you can. And I felt comfortable with that trade-off that, but that's not the right decision for everybody, right? right. You might find it very anxiety inducing to eat eggs with undercooked yolks. And if you're in that, category, then maybe you'll choose to have your eggs scrambled or hard-boiled or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's good because you've made an empowered choice now, not one out of fear.
0: Right. I love that. So, I mean, we could have another episode just about the infantilization of women, specifically pregnant women and even new parents and like this idea that just really lends itself to this idea that we shouldn't overwhelm women with all of this information just tell them exactly what to do and that's not that's that's insane it's wild that we in 2021 we're still treating women like infants and thinking that we're doing them a favor by withholding empowering information from them i couldn't agree more so eggs. So, okay. So besides eggs, which I think in your book, I think you say like eat two or three eggs a day to get choline. Is that something that you say, or is that somewhere else that I read that, uh,
1: that for women who don't consume much animal foods, definitely two or three eggs a day would be, um, would be my recommendation for those who are consuming other animal foods, which are like the next best Mm -hmm. sources of choline you don't have to do that many eggs every single day. But I think like generally speaking, if most days you can do two eggs like at your breakfast or incorporated into other meals. Yeah. Right there. You're going to meet like half of your choline requirements
0: for the day. Yeah. I remember reading that when I was pregnant and I was like, okay, Lily said I need to eat two eggs a day. So <laughs> I like, I like <laughs> hard boiled eggs. So that's like the easiest thing to do. Cause I just that's make a big batch of hard boiled, hard boiled eggs and put some salt and pepper on it and just snack on them during the day. But there so besides eggs, what are some other like most nutrient dense foods that you would recommend um, expecting mamas eat and why?
1: So a big one is uh, seafood and this actually gets into a tricky category because people get all concerned about heavy metals or maybe the issues with um, raw fish and you're told not to consume sushi. So I don't know how much we need to go down those specific rabbit holes. Um, but seafood itself is like a, your richest source of the omega-3 fat called DHA, which is very important for brain, babies' brain and vision development. So there are like irreversible periods of time of like rapid brain and vision development where that will influence baby's brain health and eye health for the rest of their life and you can't rewind the clock and go back to you know however many weeks of gestation or you know it's especially this time period they call the first thousand days so pretty much from conception until your baby turns two that you have these um, phases of brain growth and development that are so important. So DHA works right alongside with choline. The two of them tend to work hand in hand and they show up together in nature pretty frequently, such as in egg yolks or in salmon, um, where choline actually helps transport DHA into the baby's brain, which is pretty cool. Um, So seafood is the, the richest source of that. Seafood is also a great source of iodine, which is also key for brain development. Um, selenium, vitamin D12, iron, zinc, vitamin B6. I mean there's so many nutrients in seafood, but the one specifically that's hard to get in other places is the DHA. So I do recommend, yes, paying attention to mercury levels and choosing low mercury fish um, and ideally, high DHA sources as well. So that tends to be cold water fatty fish um, such as salmon or sardines. There's also some specific benefits for including shellfish in the diet, such as oysters, mussels, or clams. Um, I do recommend these cooked because uh, raw shellfish, actually, if we're talking about relative risk, 75% of seafood-related um, foodborne illness outbreaks are from raw shellfish. So mm-hmm. if I'm going to take the data at face value, unless you're super um, you know, aware of the sourcing of, of your shellfish and that they're super fresh and you're comfortable with it i do generally recommend you consume them cooked but oysters uh, clams and mussels are extremely high in b12 iron zinc and copper which are all really important nutrients um, in pregnancy i mean they're they're high up on the list for those nutrients almost akin to um, a lot of the organ meats like liver Uh, So they're excellent if you can include those in your diet, maybe once a week or so. Um, Another food I'd recommend would be going back to organ meats, organ meats or Mm -hmm. liver. Um, This is a hard sell for a lot of people. And I get it. I also did not grow up eating organ meats. I mean, we were mostly like a chicken and turkey family, to be honest, Mm -hmm. um, because my mom really bought into the the idea that red meat was going to be bad for us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That has changed nowadays, but I, I was definitely a kid who grew up eating a lot of poultry. Um, so organ meats tend to be very concentrated in nutrients. Sometimes they have 200 fold higher concentrations of vitamins and minerals than, um, just like muscle meats, like steak or chicken breast or whatever. So if you can incorporate organ meats into your diet, maybe once a week, even every other week is like fabulous. Um, so there's lots of recipes in real food for pregnancy, where I include what I call hidden liver. So you make like liver pate, and then mix it into a recipe that has ground meat, such as meatloaf, meatballs, um, you could do it in bolognese sauce, um, anything that uses ground meat, you can just hide a little bit of liver in there. And it's kind of like sneaking in a multivitamin boost um, into your food without you having to actually Eat liver. Um, Mm -hmm. For people who grew up eating it, you probably have a taste for it and enjoy it more than those of us who did not grow up eating it. Um, But it is a really, really nutrient-dense source of uh, food to incorporate into your diet, even if it's like a couple times a month. It doesn't have to be Mm -hmm. every meal or even every single week. Um, There's so many more foods. Of course, I don't want to keep it all on animal foods. So like your fruits and vegetables also provide a lot of important nutrients. Um, especially your your leafy greens are really high in folate. Um, That's important for very early fetal development, but continues to be important throughout um, pregnancy and postpartum. It also tends to have a lot of minerals, um, vitamin K1, which is helpful for blood clotting. Um, They're just fabulous nutrient-dense sources of food. So you're looking at, you know, spinach and kale and chard and all of those leafy greens. If you can incorporate those into your diet on a hopefully daily basis, but at least a couple times a week, um, you're definitely boosting your nutrient intake there as well. Awesome.
0: You mentioned folate and I'm curious what your thoughts are, are about prenatal, um, vitamins and maybe supplementing. If you don't tend to eat a lot of a specific food or nutrient in your diet. Um, but then also your thoughts on folate versus folic acid in, um, prenatals. Yep. So big question. Uh, yeah. So generally speaking, I, I
1: am a fan of prenatal supplementation. Um, but from the vantage point that it is an insurance policy, not a replacement for eating a nutrient dense diet, because I think that's kind of the message that is given a lot of times is you don't have to, again, it kind of comes back to that infantilizing, um, prenatal advice like, oh, you don't have to do anything different now that you're pregnant or you don't need to eat anything different that you're breastfeeding. It's fine. Just take your prenatal and you're good. Take your prenatal and avoid alcohol and don't have too much caffeine. The end, like Mm -hmm. end of the conversation. And uh, I mean, a prenatal vitamin, there are some really good ones on the market that are more complete, but a lot of prenatals are really not that high quality. There is no specific guideline like an FDA rule or something that supplement companies need to follow to qualify something as a prenatal vitamin. The supplement companies just get to say, this is a prenatal. Mm. No, there's no regulating agency. That's like, you have to meet X, Y, Z requirements to be a prenatal. So there's just a huge array of uh, products on the market, some of which are high quality, some of which are not some of which are contaminated with heavy metals, some of which are not, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. it's a hot mess. I mean, half of them don't even contain iodine. Most of them contain folic acid instead of containing the more bioavailable sources of folate, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, Most of them don't include choline. If they do include choline, it's like in a pixie dust amount that doesn't really do much for you. Um, Choline is a very bulky nutrient, as are minerals So if you're looking for a prenatal that's going to provide you any reasonable amount of choline or magnesium, for example, it's not going to fit in a -a one-a-day capsule, probably not even going to fit into a -a three-a-day dosage. And that like surprises a lot of people, but not all nutrients are really tiny. Some of them take up a lot of physical space. Mm. So
0: That's um, so interesting.
1: Yeah, so you have to uh, just, you know, look at, at, at... supplements for what they are. They are a supplement to an otherwise nutrient replete diet, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we also just need to look beyond a prenatal. Uh, So if you're somebody who doesn't eat a lot of seafood, for example, you might benefit from having additional supplemental DHA in your diet. Um, Unfortunately, DHA is such a delicate fat that it can easily become damaged or oxidized by other things. So when I see prenatals incorporate DHA into the multivitamin formulation where it's being exposed to, especially iron, which is highly oxidizing, or even some of the B vitamins can be kind of oxidizing. I don't, that DHA is probably gone rancid. Like it's probably not doing your body any good because it was damaged. Mm. Like that needs to be a separate supplement. Mm -hmm. But these sorts of details don't sell to the general public, you know, so when people see my recommendations on prenatals that don't include DHA, um, I also generally don't recommend a prenatal that automatically has iron built in, because a lot of people don't need the extra iron, it should only be added in, in cases of iron, identified iron deficiency, where you're not willing to replete those with food, which is far more bioavailable mm-hmm. for iron, but people see my recommendations. They're like, but there's no iron, but there's no DHA. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I cover that. Like read chapter six of real <laughs> food for pregnancy, where I talk about the supplements. There's like a reason why, um, I'm not recommending those specific things. So, um, if you see a formula that only is one capsule or one tablet a day, it's not enough. Unless you're eating like a super, super nutrient dense diet all the time, those one a days are just a complete waste of money. In my opinion, um, you want to look for a more, you know, complete uh, option. And I do have on my Instagram highlights for supplements, uh, my top two recommendations for prenatals, if people want to look into those. Um, as for the second part of your question, which is the folate versus folic acid, this comes down to some biochemistry essentially, um, where most of the folate, so folate, first of all, is like an umbrella term that refers to any, any type of folate. Um, there are naturally occurring folates. There's 150 types, at least in food alone. The majority of those are in the form known as methylfolate. Uh, And then there are synthetic forms and the synthetic form is called folic acid. And the majority of the folate in your body is in the form of methylfolate. 95 to 98% of the folate in your body is in the form of methylfolate. Folic acid is biologically inactive. Your body has to convert it via several different steps to turn it into methylfolate to be usable. Now, this is all fine and good if that conversion process worked well in everybody, but 40 to 60% of the population has a difference in the functioning of their MTHFR enzyme, um, which reduces their ability to convert folic acid into folate. And how much that process is defective, so to speak, um, depends on this specific type of MTHFR Uh, variation that you have. There are several different types, but it can be like, you know, anywhere from 30 to to, uh, 70% reduced ability to convert folic acid into methylfolate. Now, like I said, folic acid is not metabolically active. So until you convert it, your body can't do anything with it. (laughs) And then you just build up high levels of what's called unmetabolized folic acid in your body, which ironically can actually lead to a functional folate deficiency in your system, it can also mask vitamin B12 deficiency. So we are now having a lot of new research come out showing that there can be problems with unmetabolized folic acid. Many of them, we just don't actually fully understand what the effects could be because it's pretty recent that we have people ingesting such high amounts of folic acid. Um, They started fortifying the food supply in the late 1990s with uh, folic acid most of the refined grain products are fortified. And then on top of that, there's this big push to take folic acid in supplemental form um, as a preventative measure for uh, birth defects which has been, you know, somewhat effective, although it it really has only reduced the rates of neural tube defects by about 30%. So there's other nutrients involved, such as choline, such as vitamin B12, such as vitamin B6, Mm -hmm. um, that all work in synergy to help prevent neural tube defects. So we focused on like this one nutrient, and then we fortified the food supply with a synthetic form that not everybody's body can convert, thinking that we've like solved this problem and we've reduced it somewhat but we've kind of created these other issues of well what happens with the unmetabolized folic acid what happens if we like basically shut down the folic acid or the folate cycle by like pumping in too much folic acid it's created this Mm -hmm. whole quandary so uh, without getting like too far down that line of thinking um i do have a big blog post on my article on this specific topic All the references are cited because I know this is like a really hot button um, topic for people. So if you want to go back and read the research studies yourself, like all the references are there. So you're welcome to link to that um, if people want to read more about it.
0: Oh, perfect. Thank you. So this information is so important. Um, All of it, but it can also feel really overwhelming for maybe a pregnant mom who's listening and hasn't been doing any of these things and hasn't been maybe eating seafood or taking a DHA DHA supplement or their prenatal has folic acid in it. So, um, or maybe they haven't just been eating a super nutrient dense diet. So what would you say to that mom who, um, maybe feels like they've they're failing or, you know, they're not doing what they think they should be doing. Um, what would you say to that mom? So,
1: to like temper all of this sort of like sciency um, information. When I go back to some of my earliest work in my career, I was working in like a very low income area of Los Angeles with mostly women who were on like food assistance programs, um, often eating like fast food for two meals a day. They'd come into their visits with like a, a you know mega sized soda, and they'd still have relatively healthy pregnancies and healthy babies. So the human body is very resilient. It is very resilient. Um, In addition, we are always, as moms, just doing the best that we can with the information we have at Mm -hmm. the time. I actually get this question often because I wrote Real Food for Pregnancy between my two pregnancies. So I learned a lot of information in researching that I didn't know before. Had I known how vital, like I knew how important choline was, but some of the research on like how much you actually need didn't come out until I had already, like I already had a baby, oops, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so you, you're always just doing the best that you can at, at any given time. Um, What I will say is that, you know, nature has a lot of things pretty well figured out. I mean, we've been having healthy babies for millennia, right? Um, We didn't even identify many of our nutrients until like the late 1800s and early 1900s. We didn't have Mm -hmm. supplemental forms of nutrients even. Like they hadn't isolated and then like created supplements for them until mostly like the mid 1900s were the first ones. So how did we do it before? Right. You know, we relied on, you know, what mother nature provides and we, we didn't overthink it. And a lot of, a lot of what I find that's kind of cool about my work is that I'll I'll read some study on like one specific nutrient that'll point out like why this thing is so important for these specific processes. And, oh, isn't that interesting? And then you go back to it and it's like, oh, but if you're just eating this otherwise like decent diet, like you'll get enough of that. Cool. Mm -hmm. So like maybe the rationale for eating something was nutrients A, B, and C, but now you're like, oh, wow. It's also for nutrients D, E, F and K and L and M. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of things have some sort of like crossover, um, benefits. So I don't know if that's reassuring or not. I just think like the human body is really resilient. There's a lot of crosstalk between nutrients. Our bodies have a lot of metabolic flexibility built in where if something is lacking, we can like pick up the slack with something else. Um, so like choline and folate share a lot of functions. And if you're like low in folate, your body will use more choline in certain metabolic processes to make up for a lack in folate and then like vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're just always making the best decisions that we can day to day with the information we have and don't sweat the past. There's always more, always more to learn. I'm literally always learning every single day.
0: Yeah. I love that outlook. And I share the same thoughts, you know, with anything related to like parenting, especially because that's what, you know, I talk about It's We know, you know, I think it's helpful to have the information and to know like what helps us to thrive, what helps our children to thrive. Um, but then we, a lot of other things will work out too. And so, yeah, I think I really like that outlook. Um, do you have any just like quick tips just to, to leave, moms with who, you know, we've talked a lot about pregnancy, nutrition during pregnancy, but what about postpartum nutrition? Does that look any different? Um, and what can expecting moms do, um, to prepare for postpartum recovery in terms of nutrition?
1: Yeah. So great question. Um, as far as pregnancy, postpartum, and arguably you can go all the way back to like fertility, preconception, nutrition, there's a lot of overlap, like Mm-hmm. Those same nutrients are important, possibly for different reasons, um, but the same nutrients tend to be important at all the different phases. During postpartum specifically, and this will surprise a lot of people, but your nutrient needs are actually higher then than they are during pregnancy. And it's not just caloric needs, like almost all all the nutrients, really. If we go just by the RDA, it's probably like a third to half of the nutrients, um, like micronutrients would be needed in higher amounts, but I would argue probably all of them because the data we have used to set those RDAs is kind of weak for postpartum. That is is the area in nutrition where the research is most lacking, Um, Mm -hmm. which kind of makes sense when you see how much research has focused mostly on men in the past. And then particularly postpartum is such a difficult time to study. Like how many people want to sign up for a study when they're like completely overwhelmed with the newborn? (laughs) Like I wouldn't, you know, so it's, it's a bit understudied, but what we do know is that at the very least, um, even if we don't think about breastfeeding yet, if you just think about recovering from birth, so you've had, you know, either whether it was a vaginal birth or a surgical birth, you still went through some sort of either labor labor or major abdominal surgery, or perhaps it was like an emergency C-section. It was both. You had both Mm -hmm. labor and major abdominal surgery. There are huge nutrient needs that need to be repleted after that. Like if you ran a marathon you would take a while to recover from that. You would eat more food. You would drink more fluids. You would replace your electrolytes. Mm-hmm. If you had major abdominal surgery, you'd probably be doing the same. So we we do need to treat birth in the same way. You need replenishment. On top of that, your body just grew a brand new human being from scratch, which is just like a complete miracle in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. But that takes a lot of nutrients and whatever was not provided from your diet or was not already like, in your nutrient stores preconception was being like pulled from your system that entire time if you are nursing you're going to continue to pull from your nutrient stores and or whatever your intake is um, to like enhance the nutrient levels that are in breast milk so yeah it's it's huge i mean at minimum you need an extra 500 calories per day uh, we have new research showing that protein needs are specifically probably more than double um, what the current recommendations are for, for wow. postpartum. Um, so you definitely want to be thinking about replenishment. Now, the catch 22 of all of this is that when you have a baby, you really just biologically, you don't really have the wherewithal or strength or energy or, and you really shouldn't be like standing in the kitchen, cooking a whole bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. And traditionally in cultures all across the world, there was a built-in period of additional support for mothers and babies built in of about 40 days or six weeks. And it's like very consistent across the world. And this is before we had, you know, widespread travel from different areas. Like how did all of these different communities from like indigenous people in like the Amazonian basin of Peru to the Middle East, to China, to Indonesia, like to, uh, you know, a small village in Africa, how do they all come up with essentially the same Mm -hmm. traditions?
0: And it really is
1: so similar. There was like this extended period of having typically like older female relatives, um, caring for you so that your job as a mom was just to rest, recover, and receive support like feed your baby and people brought the food to you mm-hmm. people encouraged you to stay in bed and rest you slowly returned to you know normal activities and movement and whatever um and so it, it's hard when we're talking about recovery because in my mind I'm imagining the new mom who already has a baby and is listening to this you know while mm-hmm. stuck under a sleeping baby on the couch going like oh like I can't do this all I have is this you know Bar to eat and like luckily you know my husband left a glass of water before he went to work today and they they don't have that help built in they don't have that support Mm -hmm. built in and I can tell you like I made the mistake just like so many others with my first of not really planning for postpartum recovery because I put all the emphasis on planning for the perfect birth right Mm -hmm. um second time around I did like very little birth planning and planned all around postpartum recovery right so um If you're already in the postpartum phase, this is the time to ask for help from other people. So family members, friends, your whatever people, you know, in your community or church community. Um, There are also meal delivery services. Um, I know for friends that live far away from me where I can't deliver a meal to them, I've actually ordered them meal delivery from places like Good Kitchen. There's a lot of local ones in your area that you could look into, but just choosing, you know, the most nutritious option that I could, um, even if it isn't the most nutrition option, nutritious option, it's better than just living on like snack foods when, when you're nursing. Mm -hmm. Um, so those would definitely be helpful if you're already, if you're currently pregnant and like leading into postpartum and have a little time to think about it, this might be the time to ask your friends and family to set up a meal train for you, to start preparing foods uh, for your freezer so that you can have things easily defrostable. Maybe you can set aside a list of recipes that you can share with friends or family members. Like, could you make this for me postpartum? Um, I have a bunch of different ideas in my, um, I have a a blog post called Real Food Postpartum Recovery Meals that links out to 50 plus recipes and gives you a lot of different ideas for outsourcing, asking for help, um, how to freeze things, um so i just did like a bunch of batch cooking and had my freezer stocked second time around i asked my mom to stay with us for a month which was hugely helpful especially when you have two kids and you need somebody to like just occupy the older kids so i can sit on the couch and nurse um it makes a huge huge difference even though it seems when you're thinking about it it seems small but in the moment I mean, what you need is people to bring you food. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. It really comes down to just meeting your basic needs. Like I need a shower every couple of days. I need just somebody to hold the baby every once in a while. And I need somebody to bring me food.
0: Yeah. And fill your water bottle. You know? yeah. yeah. If only yeah. we could like shift this like cultural idea from like what do new moms need the most? We don't need onesies. We don't need toys. We don't need, I mean, diapers are helpful, but like really, we don't need a thousand onesies. We really need food. Just if you don't know what to get the new mom in your life, get her food, get her healthy mm. nutrient dense food. And that is, you can never go wrong there.
1: I a hundred percent agree.
0: Yeah. Anytime that I can, if
1: there's somebody in my community, even if I don't know them well, um, and I know they're having a baby, I always like ask "Hey, do you have a meal train set up? Could I set mm. one up? Like, and we deliver a a meal to them or mm-hmm. sometimes two I'll deliver on one week. And if I see their meal train is not full, I'll like go and, you know, the next time I'm cooking, make a double batch and bring them half. Yeah. And it's always like, you remember the people who helped you out early postpartum. I know mm-hmm. I did. That's like such a like vulnerable and just, deeply important time. You remember how much you were cared for. I feel like that like Mm -hmm. stays with you, um, long-term just from like an emotional level, but of course also from like a physical nourishment level as well.
0: For sure. Yes. Well, Lily, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge with us. This has been so helpful. Can you please share with us how people can connect with you and how they can find your books?
1: Yeah, so you can find most of my stuff on my website, which is lillynicholsrdn.com. That'll link out to my books. It links out to my shop. Um, my shop has Real Food for Pregnancy and paperback and ebook. I also have an e-cookbook, which has additional recipes that aren't found in either of the books and uh, paperback purchases come with a free copy of the e-cookbook. Um, it's also available separately. Uh, I also have a blog up there. There's like 250 plus blog posts, use the search function to look for specific topics that you're interested in. We talked about my article on folate versus folic acid, um, postpartum recovery meals. I mean, there's just so much up there. I've been blogging for almost a decade now. So there's a lot of articles on there. Um, As far as social media and connecting, You can find me at, uh, on Instagram mainly, and that's the same as my website, Lily Nichols RDN. And finally, for people who just want to get like a peek at the book, but aren't sure they want to buy, I do give away the first chapter for free of Real Food for Pregnancy. So, um, definitely check that out. You'll see if you like my writing style or not. Obviously you can tell from, you know, our conversation that I, I do like to go into the details, but, I also really make an effort to put them all in context, so I try to present it in a non-overwhelming way, Um, so you can really, you know, look at it, make informed choices, take action, and not get too
0: bogged down with all the details. Yeah, I love that, and you do, I think you do a really great job of of uh, presenting the information in that way. And I also just want to say to that your Instagram account, not only are your blogs very, very like so much rich information in there, but your Instagram account, you do like research briefs, I think you call them. Um, so you do posts yeah. with like a snapshot of like different nutrients and you kind of link this evidence. So it's re- a really digestible, um, like bite kind of bite-sized way to get some information. And I love the way you do that. So everything that you do is just like you're, you just provide a ton of free knowledge essentially. Yeah.
1: I I really make an effort to put as much out there for free as possible. It's kind of like my, Mm -hmm. my calling. (laughs) The research briefs are a bit of a response to like new research comes out and I'm like, dang, I wish this study was out by the time that I wrote real food for pregnancy. And I can kind of fill in those blanks by providing that information instead In real food for pregnancy, um, a lot of times it just provides more context or more rationale for emphasizing certain foods or, you know, certain sources of nutrients that maybe we weren't aware of uh, previously or, you know, different recommendations on like quantities of nutrients that have changed. So I try to keep people up to date on that um, via my Instagram and my blog posts.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you, Lily. Again, thank you so much for joining us. I know this has, this is going to be so helpful for so many moms and we really appreciate the work that you do. Well, likewise to you, Taylor. Thank you.